0: Convalescent plasma for COVID-19 is no panacea. Does awake-prone positioning keep COVID-19 patients off the ventilator? Hydroxychloroquine eh, goes down with a whimper. And are virtual hospitals really the answer? Hi, and welcome to the show. Today is April 26, 2020, and I'm Dr. Michael Zagota for the Spyro Podcast. Amy Doxer marcus reports for the Wall Street Journal, and in her article dated out on April 21st, She states that, to date, there have been approximately 600 severely ill COVID-19 patients that have received blood plasma from recovered patients in a study researchers hope sheds light on whether the experimental therapy improves health outcomes and maybe yields other useful data outside the scientific rigor of a, say, a traditional clinical trial. The patients are participating in a national expanded access program authorized in early April by the Federal Food and Drug Administration. Expanded access also known as compassionate use people refer to, is often sought by uh, patients with life-threatening illnesses for which there are really no approved therapies or who can't even participate in other clinical trials. The utility of data from compassionate use studies is a source of debate, especially within the medical and scientific community, where the gold standard for determining a new drug's safety and efficacy has long been the controlled clinical trial. In those traditional randomized trials, one group of patients gets the experimental drug and the control group either gets a standard therapy or maybe even a placebo. We know that it is impossible for compassionate use studies to show whether a drug is working because every patient in those studies gets the compound, or in this case, the plasma, with no control group for comparison. Opponents also worry that patients could become reluctant to enroll in, say, traditional clinical trials for fear that they won't get the experimental therapy. Without a control group, we cannot be certain what is making the difference. Say, is it age, gender, weight, underlying health conditions, socioeconomic status, or doctors' own biases? All of these things can influence the patient's outcome. In many diseases, including COVID 19, some patients are going to get better on their own. As a result, compassionate use has been viewed as a way to give patients emergency access to experimental therapies rather than a source of reliable data. As of Sunday, the University Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin, part of the UW Health System, has transfused 11 COVID patients with convalescent plasma under the expanded access protocol. Eight of the patients were in life-threatening situations and now are in various stages of recovery. The other three received plasma before or just after admission to the intensive care unit and have shown some improvement. One was discharged from the hospital, one was taken off the ventilator within a day, and symptoms have since improved. The third hasn't worsened and has not required an ICU admission. Right now, there is no lab test that proves that convalescent plasma has actually caused these improvement in results. We do know that between 5,000 and 10,000 people may ultimately be eligible to enroll in the convalescent plasma program. Investigators will, of course, compare patients who get the plasma with similar patients who didn't receive it, such as, say, a very ill patient at a hospital where therapy was not even available. Researchers do hope the knowledge they gather maybe can inform future trials and aid doctors and researchers in, say, another outbreak, or when we have a second or maybe late third wave that happens again next spring. Another analysis of compassionate use data, say, about the experimental drug remdesivir from Gilead, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, it came under a lot of criticism, specifically because there was no control group. Scientists pointed out that the COVID-19 patients received the drug in centers around the world where care may have been completely different between one center to the next. Fortunately, there are also traditional randomized controlled trials going on of remdesivir right now. The FDA has shown flexibility in accepting these expanded access data during a drug-approved process, particularly for these rare conditions. The FDA also has worked closely with companies trying to extract, quote, real-world evidence, end quote, about patients' experiences with new or experimental drugs specifically drawn from sources such as the electronic medical record. Convalescent plasma has been tried as a potential intervention in previous public health emergencies such as during Ebola, during the uh, severe acute respiratory syndrome, but because robust randomized clinical trials were not conducted, there is still no clear data to support that this has been of any benefit. In the end, thousands of anecdotes are still just thousands of anecdotes. Word on the street is that the NIH is involved in efforts to launch a randomized controlled clinical trial of manufactured IV immunoglobulin-containing antibodies prepared from the serum of many recovered COVID patients. That'll be interesting to see those results. Other randomized controlled trials in the works include one of the tests convalescent plasma given prophylactically to those at risk of COVID-19 infections at Johns Hopkins University. Let's hope those data come out better than that from the BREATHE trial that came out of Johns Hopkins, which reported on back in Episode 2 of the Spiral Podcast. Yeah. Prone positioning is an adjunctive therapy used that has been proven to save lives in sedated patients with confirmed moderate to severe acute respiratory distress syndrome, also called ARDS, that are receiving invasive mechanical ventilation. Prone positioning involves placing a patient in the prone also known as the face-down position, for time periods usually around 12 to 16 hours per day. Different hospitals have different protocols. But we do know that prone positioning promotes lung homogeneity, therefore improving gas exchange and respiratory mechanics, therefore improving reduction of ventilation intensity and reducing ventilator-induced lung injury. What does that mean? That means that it makes people breathe better. Maintaining self-ventilation is associated with an increased aeration of dependent lung regions, less need for sedation and improved cardiac filling, and it also removes the risk for ventilator-induced lung injury, and so is an important therapeutic goal in hypoxic patients. The difference is, self-ventilation means you're just breathing on your own, while mechanical ventilation means that a machine is breathing for you. The use of prone positioning in awake self-ventilating patients with COVID-19-induced acute hypoxic respiratory failure and or ARDS, could improve the gas exchange and reduce the need for invasive mechanical ventilation. But this has not been studied outside of case series. I've actually done this in my hospital and we'll talk about this a little bit later. However, an increase in oxygenation does not necessarily reduce the risk of ending up on a mechanical ventilator. Prone positioning does have significant attached risks, such as causing pressure sores on a patient's face, chest, abdomen, knees, ankles, Prone positioning is very uncomfortable for some patients, increases the nurse's workload, and if ineffective, could hinder the delivery of other, more effective medical care. Hence, there is a need to determine if prone positioning of awake patients is effective in reducing the need for invasive mechanical ventilation. There was a multi-center open-label, randomized controlled study of COVID-19 patients, ARDS, to determine if the prone positioning reduced the need for the mechanical ventilation. This is an ongoing trial. There is no data out yet. This is actually a trial that's going on in Europe right now. In this trial, patients will be asked to remain for at least one hour and to a maximum total of 16 hours in the prone position, with say like a 45-minute break for meals, immediately prior to proning. If oxygen saturations are less than 94% on 40% FiO2, They start at, say, 100% oxygen to ensure stability during proning. Then they will wean this down to wherever the patient started off with in the first place. The nurse or assistant then assists the patient to turn on the side and then face down with the support of pillows as required for patient's comfort. This ensures that they are predominantly on their chest rather than on either of their sides. Arms can be at the side or in what we call the swimmer's position where one arm is out in front and one arm is in the back down towards patient's hip. We then put some different pillows to make sure that the patient is comfortable in this position and make sure that the patient has access to a call bell, usually in their hand or at arm's length. The patient's vitals and worker breathing score are measured before and then one hour into each proning session and at the end of each session. Intervention to continue daily until the requirement to maintain oxygen levels greater than 94% requires less than 40% of supplemental oxygen especially with either a Venturi mask or, say, high-flow nasal cannula. Now, we're doing a little bit of prone positioning like this in our hospital now. We're doing it on the floor, and we're doing it in the intensive care unit. We are seeing benefits in oxygenation. We are not part of this official trial. But because we are seeing improvement in our patients, we are going ahead and doing it on a case-by-case basis. I'm looking forward to these results. Based on my N of I think four now, I think there may be something here to keep patients off the ventilator. We'll see. On March 28th, the Federal Food and Drug Administration approved the use of two antimalarial drugs, hydroxychloroquine and its related cousin, chloroquine, for emergency use to treat COVID-19. However, A study just published in a French medical journal provides new evidence that hydroxychloroquine does not appear to help the immune system clear the coronavirus from the body any sooner. The study comes on the heels of two other studies, one in France and one in China. They report that some benefits to the combination of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin for COVID-19 patients who did not have severe symptoms of the virus. Now, what does that mean? It means that if you were not that sick, it seems like it might have helped. There are already other clinical studies that have showed that it is really not that effective against COVID-19 as well as several other viruses. And more importantly, it can actually have some dangerous side effects, especially when it comes to the heart. All of this may be giving people a false hope. The latter has led to widespread shortages of hydroxychloroquine for patients who need it to treat malaria, lupus, and even rheumatoid arthritis. My wife has rheumatoid arthritis. Fortunately, we've not had an issue with getting the hydroxychloroquine. In our area, they've really put a tight hold on who's allowed to write for it and who's actually going to get it. So the indications for which it was really approved are for lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and malaria. Otherwise, it's really not approved except for the FDA's most recent allowable statements. The idea that the combination of hydroxychloroquine with an antibiotic drug, azithromycin, was effective against COVID-19 gained a lot of attention after a study published in March 17th showed that on a trial of 80 patients carried out by Philippe Gautre in Marseille, France, he showed that although some of their results appeared to be encouraging, it should also be noted that most of the patients only had mild symptoms. Furthermore, 85% of the patients didn't even have a fever, one of the major things that deal with the symptoms of having the virus, thus suggesting that these patients likely would have naturally cleared the virus on their own without any intervention. Really, not sure exactly what the medicine might have been doing for those patients. In another study posted on MedRxIV, this is a pre publication clearinghouse where articles have not yet been peer reviewed. A Chinese scientist from a hospital in Wuhan University, in Wuhan, China, of course, gave hydroxychloroquine to patients with only mild infections who were free of any other medical issues, similar to the Gautray study. The results showed that the 31 patients who received the drug showed maybe a lessening of their symptoms 24 hours earlier than the control group, but it did not show that the virus was cleared any earlier. In addition, pneumonia symptoms improved in 25 of the 31 patients versus 17 of the 31 patients in the control group. As noted, in several of the comments associated with the manuscript, there are issues related to the translation of the paper, thus clouding interpretations of even some of the results. The paper also appears to focus more on pneumonia than COVID-19. However, these results may be cleared up or addressed once the paper finishes the peer-review process. But two other studies have conflicting results. second French group, led by Jean-Michel Molina, uh, has now tested the hydroxychloroquine azithromycin combination treatment on 11 patients at a hospital in Paris, France. Their results are strikingly different. Like the Marseille study, the Molina trial was also a small pilot study. Molina and colleagues used the same dosing regimen as Gautre. In contrast, however, to the Gautre study, eight of the 11 patients had underlying health conditions. Ten of 11 of those patients had fevers and were quite ill at the time that they started receiving the doses. These Paris researchers found that after five to six days of treatment with hydroxychloroquine and the azithromycin, eight of the 10 patients still tested positive for COVID-19. Of these 10 patients. One died, two were transferred to the ICU, and another had to be removed from the treatment due to serious complications from the medication. In addition, a similar study in China also showed no difference in viral clearance after seven days, either with or without the hydroxychloroquine with the patients within the entire trial. This supports Molina's findings as well. Thus, despite the recent approval of this drug for use against COVID-19, questions remain as to the efficacy of the treatment. As Molina and colleagues have noted, quote, Ongoing randomized clinical trials with hydroxychloroquine should provide a definitive answer regarding the alleged efficacy of the combination and will assess its safety, end quote. Hydroxychloroquine's kind of going down with a whimper now. We're not even using it on patients in the hospital much anymore. We're doing it on a case-by-case basis. If we are, it's maybe to help kind of control the surge of the immune system. But we're not expecting to see it changing people's lives. In New York, there's a lot of uh, anecdotal and pre-publication reports coming out that are also telling us that hydroxychloroquine really is no panacea, just like the convalescent plasma, no panacea. This is not an end-all, be-all treatment. I believe that we'll see that hydroxychloroquine really isn't going to be doing anything to help our patients in the end. If it does, it probably helps with the symptoms, but it definitely is not going to help with getting rid of the bug. So, what is a virtual hospital? After several years of effort to try to get support, say, with regulatory organizations, reimbursement challenges, telemedicine appears to be on the right track of becoming commonplace, ready to represent a sizable portion of care delivery. This near-term future has crafted a new term, this virtual hospitals. Some people refer to it as virtual care. Some people call it telemedicine. Some people call it telecare. There's all different kind of names for it. What does the term actually mean? Well, we're certainly talking about telemedicine, but that can mean a lot of different things to different people. Is it, say, an iPad that just has allowed chat between doctors and rural patients? Or is it the implementation of true information technology for AI-powered remote monitoring? The fact is, is that even professionals who've been involved with the connected health technologies for over 20 years now are not able to catch a real definition by its tail at this point. Meaning behind virtual hospital usually varies by organization, obviously. In most cases, it stands for a group of intensive care physicians who are working in a call center environment. This is not what my system refers to it as. We call this our virtual critical care, which is a very specific and deliberately designed means to care for ICU patients only. There's a lot of screens, technology involved, nurses, staff, things you might not even think about. Many smaller institutions, besides the fact that they're difficult to reach, also don't have full-time specialists, so this is something that was trying to be used to bring that level of care to those patients. Doctors from these, quote, virtual hospitals can intervene in real time where every single heartbeat and breath are monitored and recorded with nurses in the hospital watching. Doctors from virtual care hospitals can intervene in real time where every heartbeat and breath are monitored and recorded with nurses in the hospital watching simultaneously. At the same time, nurses are in the virtual critical care suite watching all of the same things. At the same time, virtual critical care physicians are also watching, all working as a team with our virtual respiratory therapists and also with our virtual pharmacists. And Now we even have virtual spiritual care helping families to camera into patient rooms to spend time with their loved ones. There's a lot going on here in this new virtual hospital environment. What COVID-19 has allowed us to do is to accelerate what we were looking to start doing in the first place, which is to keep patients at home and manage their care at home as much as possible. Think of a virtual hospital like this. Instead of thinking it in terms of just a camera or FaceTime going back and forth, what a virtual hospital is, it is truly digital communication that's continually going back and forth even without face-to-face contact so that physicians and other health providers can monitor exactly what's going on with a patient to ensure that their health is as good as it can be at the time. There will be a time probably in my career where hospitals will be for only surgeries, very complex patients, and for patients that are sick enough to be in the intensive care unit. Otherwise, all other patients should be able to be taken care of in a virtual hospital, even with relatively high acuity of care, and it be done safely. If a patient exceeds the margin of safety at home, then they are immediately admitted to the hospital without even having to stop at the ER, and those daily progress notes are already in the patient's medical record from the virtual hospital. Once the threat's over, a patient can be discharged back to the virtual hospital until they fully recover, further getting them out of the hospital even sooner. Some institutions are looking to use home health nurses to train family members to give their loved ones IV medications such as antibiotics and IV fluids at home through a semi-permanent IV line. More robust home oxygen delivery systems are now being set up so temporary home oxygen can also be used to help keep patients out of the hospital. Let me tell you an anecdotal story that's happened with our virtual hospital. Right now, we have several patients that are at home part of our virtual hospital with COVID-19 that are being monitored very closely. Those patients that are now on supplemental oxygen requiring less than six liters by nasal cannula, that's the little thing that goes in your nose, less than six liters per minute of this, they otherwise would have to be readmitted to the hospital and stay there because where else are they going to get this level of oxygen? Now that we can get this oxygen at home and we have this now virtual hospital setup, we can monitor them very closely. I was told by a colleague that she had a patient that was on six liters nasal cannula and she actually self-proned the patient like we talked about in the last segment about proning. This maneuver got the patient's oxygen saturation up from 85% all the way to 94% in a matter of just a few minutes, stabilizing the situation while the ambulance arrived. That patient came straight to our ICU. We kept him in the prone position for 24 hours, weaning his oxygen down and he was discharged from the ICU within 24 hours and went home two days later. The term virtual may not be the best pick, since it kind of sounds like it's really not real, while the provided care is very real. The point is that doctors and other healthcare providers can be located anywhere across the globe, although almost none of them dub themselves, say, as a virtual hospital. Around 65% of U.S. hospitals connect patients and practitioners remotely. One nurse at a virtual hospital can set up a monitor and watch upwards of 40 patients, say, in a 12-hour shift. Normally, if patients need nurses to come out and see them, one nurse can see maybe five, at the very most, 10 patients in a day. However, in a call center where all the virtual hospital monitoring and whatnot is set up, one nurse can actively monitor upwards of 20 to sometimes 40 patients in a 12-hour shift. This is done in the context of a full team, so besides working together, access and efficiency also need to be kept in balance because these nurses that are doing this virtually are not going to be able to intubate somebody if they get too sick, so things need to be watched closely so that intervention can be done as quickly as possible. While the above mentioned goal is clear, the traditional ways and old habits represent obstacles on the path of this realization. The patient does not always need to be in the same room with the doctor or to even receive treatment. But it has always been that way, and doctors are used to office-based care as a way of getting paid. Of course, there are situations that require seeing a patient in the flesh. But reaching the right decision should not be based on old habits and traditional ways, but on the methodology and practices of, say, triage. Although science-based, Triage is also a kind of art, though, and sometimes doctors will need a patient in front of them, using all five senses to collect critical information. In the case of virtual hospitals, the most important first step is asking the right questions. In order to reach the situation where a patient is in the office because he absolutely needs to be, proper triage is the key. One day, a designed app, I'm sure, will probably be able to wear that triage hat, but Although popular mobile apps are still a relatively new thing in healthcare delivery systems, but eventually there'll be an app or some type of customized website that's able to determine the level of care that patients need, and it very well can happen in the next few years. While automated triage is still part dream, virtual hospitals are definitely ready for patients with chronic diseases who are in a constant struggle to manage their illnesses, and this is being done at a lot of places across the country. A great part of that struggle. Is the apparent lack of freedom since they feel tied to hospitals for life but with say a mini ipad and a bluetooth peripheral such as a pulse oximeter or blood pressure cuff they are able to maintain regular visits with their clinicians without setting foot in the hospital or doctor's office furthermore a clinician can get a closer look at the living conditions of the patient and even peek at the contents of the pantry or refrigerator kind of interesting i've been doing some uh, virtual visits for my pulmonary clinic, and it's very uh, unique opportunity to have them walk around and show you, "Hey, show me where you keep your medicine, and then show me which medicines you're taking and how do you take them. It's very interesting to see them in their own environment. Once you get them out of the clinic environment, then they're much more natural with things, it's a lot easier to have a back and forth with getting meaningful information. Also, with my virtual opportunities, I'm able to check in more frequently. Doctors will be able to ensure that major health events such as a heart attack are not followed by depression or even suicidal thoughts, hopefully in the future. I've had several COPD patients that once they get home, they go into a very deep depression because they're trying to wean off of the steroids. They're on antibiotics. They can't breathe as well as they could before they went into the hospital. They're wondering when the next lung attack, so to speak, is going to happen. So uh, it's important to have this kind of follow-up and doing it virtually really allows that opportunity. It's undeniable that virtual hospitals are changing the future of healthcare in terms of quicker access, better efficiency, and greater involvement without the sake of uh, accessing or hurting other people's freedom. But it's not just about technology. It's of course, much more about how it is applied. The resources are there, but they require the involvement of everyone, doctors, patients, institutions, nurses, the overall health environment, especially even family. The future doesn't lie simply in visualizing the virtualized model being used to convert an old model. Instead, we need to think of technology as a tool. So it all comes down to the question of what problems are we trying to solve with it? That's all. Once you figure out what kind of tool we're going to use to solve the problems, I'm sure that the virtual opportunities are going to grow. Now, will reimbursement allow for us to be able to afford to do this? Yeah, we'll see. I want to share with you an article about a man with whom I've never met, but I have, in one form or another, interacted with, sometimes daily, if not multiple times a day. The article was written by Martin Pollock, Mark Zeidel, and Theodore Steinman. These are friends and colleagues of one of the greatest contributors to the health and well being of our patients. Their article was published on statnews.com. Now you ask any doctor, nurse, or other clinician about up to date. And you'll get some version of this answer. I use it all the time to stay current, and I often pull it up when I'm talking with patients just to show them some things or print up some of the information for them. Clinicians all over the world, up-to-date is essential. It's as essential as Google, but smarter and based on evidence. The creator of this invaluable and now omnipresent resource was Dr. Burton Bud Rose. He's a brilliant kidney specialist, entrepreneur, and a friend and colleague of those who wrote the article. Unfortunately, Dr. Bud Rose died on Friday from complications of COVID-19 and Alzheimer's disease at the age of 77. About 30 years ago, Bud was looking for a way to more rapidly update his first textbook. Uh, It had become the nephrology bible for medical students titled clinical physiology of acid base and electrolyte disorders it also was the go-to book for practicing clinicians and especially faculty members in the united states and beyond when his publisher declined to put the book into a format that was accessible by computer bud just did it himself and up to date was born He first focused on kidney disease, then gradually opened the lens to include virtually all of medicine. With his wife, Gloria, as his partner, Bud turned a basement business into the most widely used and universally respected educational resource for clinicians around the world. UpToDate helps healthcare workers with access to a computer or any smartphone know the right thing to do at the right time for their patients and to know it immediately. When the publisher bought UpToDate in 2008, More than 3,000 physicians at that time were reviewing and updating its contents and creating recommendations for how to diagnose and treat thousands of conditions. Today, clinicians use this resource about one million times every day and often change their clinical decisions based on what they read and learn. Bud Rose defined what it means to be a superb clinical educator. From his training through his faculty positions at the University of Massachusetts Medical School in Worcester, uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and Harvard Medical School, he was a clinician and educator without peer. He had the gift of delivering clear, concise, and precise presentations on any topic, especially his chosen field of nephrology, of course. Bud's writing sparkled with crisp, logical thinking presented in a straightforward style that all could understand. Even as his work at Up to Date demanded more and more of his time, Bud continued to see patients at Beth Israel Deaconess and continued to teach regularly. He met every week with the nephrology fellows just to hear cases and to teach them the ins and outs of kidney disease and its management. Fellows and other faculty members benefited from the magic of his teaching. Bud also devoted and directed an annual review course in nephrology that each year attracted an all-star cast of guest lecturers who came to Boston to teach because of the respect for Bud and his work. Up to Date is available in nine languages now, and their patients owe an enormous debt of gratitude to Bud. Bud exemplified excellence in clinical care and teaching. Those of us who had the privilege to know him, of which I was not one of them, I was at Beth Israel Deaconess when he was there, but I had never had the opportunity to work or meet with him, but my mentor did at the time and knew him well. Bud's legacy quietly contributes to a goal he passionately worked toward throughout his life providing better care for patients quickly. Now it's time to talk about something that I like and something that I don't like. First, something that I like. It's been a couple of years now. I can't remember exactly how long ago when, but Kanye West embarked upon this self aggrandizing seven minute monologue during an appearance on The Ellen DeGeneres Show. When his monologue hit full speed, West bellowed the following statement to nobody in particular. He said, Picasso is dead. Walt Disney is dead. Steve Jobs is dead. Name someone living that you can name in the same breath as them. The question has remained unanswered until now. Because although I don't know the name of this genius in question, but there has definitely, in my life, finally been another one discovered. The pattern should now go, Picasso, Walt Disney, Steve Jobs, and whoever invented the skip intro button. I like the skip intro button. I'm increasingly of the persuasion that this tool is the greatest invention of the 21st century so far. It's certainly the most satisfying. If you're yet to experience its magnificent wonders, let me walk you through it, step by glorious step. You turn on Netflix or Amazon Prime Video, you choose a show, the interminable title sequence lurches into action. A little rectangular button then suddenly pops up in the bottom right-hand part of the screen. It says, skip intro. You hit it. As if by magic, the title sequence goes away and you're slap bang right in the middle of the show itself, right where you want it to be. Miraculous. Two of my favorite shows are Westworld on HBO and Bosch on Amazon Prime. My wife and I love, love, love watching Bosch on Amazon Prime. If you haven't seen it yet, you got to start with season one. Each season builds into a perfect final series conclusion at the end of its final season. Each episode's about, you know, between 48 and 60 minutes or so, and of course has a two-minute intro at the beginning of each one. Simply being able to go from one episode to the next and right into the plot of the catching of a killer is truly spiritually satisfying. On the other hand, after being spoiled by the skip intro button, I go to watch... Westworld. There's no skip button. It's a small thing, but I can tell you that episodes I would have otherwise binge watched, I've just closed my laptop instead and found something more productive to do. So in an ideal world, all title sequences would be very short, say it's like the one on the good place, which is just a momentary quick splash of white on green screen. Then they jump right into the story to show just how desperate they are to tell you as much of that story as they can before time runs out. It tells you there's no time to waste. It's exciting. But until that happens, at least you've got this magical new button. Its unknown creator should step forward immediately so we can all throw flowers at their feet. Now, something I don't like. This is not something that a lot of people are going to say, well, I never thought of that, but I don't like snakes, specifically rattlesnakes and copperheads. Let me tell you a couple of stories. When I was in the Marine Corps back in my youth, I was attached to a Force Recon deployment in uh, Yuma, Arizona. We were just doing some practice drills and learning from these guys. These guys are just, when you when you talk about studs in the military, these guys are right up there. They're not called Force Recon anymore. They're uh, they're kind of on par with the Navy SEALs and whatnot. They have different kind of mission, but they're all under this new kind of special forces model that the military has. Anyways, these guys are total BA. So we're attached to these guys, and we're just laying around board one night and One of those guys sits up and goes, let's go catch some rattlesnakes. And us youngins were saying, well, let's go do it. So we all follow him up in the hills and we're humping up these little mountains at night with just little forehead flashlights. And we're turning over rocks looking for rattlesnakes. Yeah, that's what we're called, jarheads. Anyway, suddenly we hear the rattle scares the living daylights out of the four of us that were following this guy. This guy shoves his hand underneath the rock, and we, and that rattle just gets even louder. We go bolting as fast as we can, twisted ankles, falling, scraping our elbows. A buddy of mine got a big old punk knot on his head. Get to the bottom of the hill, huffing and puffing, and we see this guy come walking down, holding this probably four foot-long rattlesnake right around the neck. It's still alive and still rattling. We thought that the snake was like actually chasing us. Instead, it was this guy just walking down the hill behind us, carrying this snake. Then he was upset. He was like, why don't you guys stick around and help me catch some more? Threw it at our feet. That thing shot right at one of my buddies, knocked him right in the boot. We freaked out and took off running. That's why he was forced recon and we were not. The other side of that coin is when I was just running here recently, I was out for a morning run and since the kids are all out of school now, they were standing around something on the road, and as I approached, I saw that it was a snake. It was actually really beautiful. It was a copperhead. It was just laying there. I thought it was dead. It wasn't moving. Kids are poking it with a stick. It's not doing nothing. It's just laying there. Well, I get probably within about six inches of it, and I put my foot, just the toe of my running shoe, probably about three inches away from his face, and that stinking little snake lunched right at my toe. I freaked out. I was was screaming like a little girl. If I was in a race, I would have beaten my time by a good five minutes. I don't care how long the race was. I was just in full-on sprint. Those kids all did the exact same thing. They blew out of there as quicker than I was. They passed me. So, yeah, I don't like rattlesnakes, and I don't like copperheads. Just want to share a couple funny stories, and with that, I'm going to leave you with this song. Song about rattlesnakes and copperheads. Yes, I actually found one. Hard to believe, but there's one out there. Hope you enjoy. That's it for today's show. From Mars Hill Media, this is the Spiral Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked what you heard, it would be great if you give us a five-star rating as it helps us move up the charts. Oh, and tell your friends and colleagues how to subscribe, too. Looking forward to being with you again in the future. Until next time. Rattlesnake said to the Copperhead, you give us vipers a real bad name. You prey on the weakest, fight for no reason, no wonder we get blamed. The copperhead laughs and kiss my ass, you can bark but there ain't much bite. You rattle that tail but it's fear I smell, I think you're shaking out of fright. Rattlesnake, Rattlesnake. Copperhead, either one of them, keep them or stay home, they get fed. Don't pass play. Lie by lie, cheat by cheat. Men on me smile and teeth. They just run, sporky tongues. And the whore's burning down. copperhead said to the rattlesnake, If you ever want to make it rain be twice as tough, fear will be our game. Rattlesnake said to the copperhead, you know we were the original sin, and I bet you my rattle against your copper, but the bitch takes the apple again. Rattlesnake, Rattlesnake copperhead, head. either one of wanna dance, kill day, stay home, they get fat, and don't pass play. Let us run, the tongue in a hole.